Hello and welcome to Uncap Web3 Talks, a new podcast that focuses on everything Web3, NFTs, the metaverse, DAOs, digital art, and much more. My name is Norman Wiese, I'm the founder of Uncap Collective, and in this brand new show, I want to have in-depth conversations with interesting personalities that have a true impact on Web3. I'll talk to founders, collectors, artists, investors, and other thought leaders. I'm excited to welcome you to this very first episode where I'm talking to Malte Rau, who is the country lead of the generative art DAO, Bright Moments. While the majority of the NFT projects out there have seen a significant downtrend, art-focused projects that don't rely on fancy roadmaps and other external factors appear to be much more stable. That's why I think it's super interesting to hear Malte talk about the space. We chatted about differences between traditional and digital art. We also did a deep dive into generative art in particular. And last but not least, he shared some insights about Bright Moments itself. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. So without further ado, let's jump right into it. Hello, Malte. Hi, Norman. Um, it's great to have you on here on my podcast, no, on our podcast, on the Uncapped podcast. Um, yeah, I'm I'm very excited to to chat with you. I think um, you are a very good expert when it comes to generative art, art in general. And I'm, as you know, very bullish and excited about what Bright Moments is doing. So I'm I'm happy to have you on here. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks so much for, for having me. I'm very excited to inaugurate um, this podcast series with you. Um, I'm pretty good. Um, I, had very I had a few very intense weeks um, leading up to Mexico City, but um, now I'm flying there on Monday and sort of most of the work streams that I've been taking care of um, preparing the event um, have been done. So I'm actually sort of relaxed going, going, going into the event. Um, awesome. Fly, well fly, flying to Mexico city to the sun. Amazing. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to come to that later. Uh, but before we jump into, into the actual stuff around bright moments and into generative art and everything, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your background? Um, how did you end up in the web three space? Um, tell us about you. Sure. Um, happy to do that. Um, my professional background is sort of in the in the art market. Um, worked for for galleries and sort of um, other entities in the uh, in the art space. You know, traditional sort of art, uh, contemporary art market um, with uh, fairs and gallery shows, and um, you know, consulting people on what to buy. And um, I have always been, or not always, but like for a few years, been interested in, in crypto, like um, around 2016, 17, um, sort of be right before that first big bubble or cycle or whatever you want to call it. Um, I, got, I got quite interested in it and then sort of followed it always. Um, but those two things were like completely separate, like my professional life and um, my you know side interest in crypto. Um, and earlier this year, I got introduced to um, a few people from Bright Moments um, and then to Seth, the founder of Bright Moments, um, through my partner, who uh, knew them from, from New York, sort of coincidentally. And they were just preparing the event there. We're going to do in Kraftwerk here in Berlin. And um, 
it just so happened that you know I uh, I decided to uh, I guess work for them during the event and uh, do certain things for them, help them with some things uh, during the event, like find a space for like where people could work out of and um, help onboard some people and uh, bring in some people from the from the from the art space um, in Berlin. And I was actually sort of um, wrapping up my old job and. Um, was thinking about applying to to to, to something different, and um, r- like right during that time, that was also the reason why why I had some extra time, and then um, and then I spoke to Saf and and some some other members from the team, and they wanted to stay in Berlin, and so it, it just emerged very organically that it's probably a pretty good fit. Um, yeah, I was amazed by the idea of like starting to work professionally in Web three, and they wanted to build out. Um, a gallery here in Berlin, and I was sure I could help them with that. So it was it was a pretty good fit, I think. And um, awesome. it, it has been very intense since then, but I'm I'm happy for the time so far. Very cool. So your 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 new role, and we as I said, we're going to come to that in in depth later. But your new role basically combined a little bit of your your crypto enthusiasm enthusiasm and and interest and 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 your professional life, I guess. Before we jump into that more specifically um i would love since i have an actual art expert here today and nfts and and all of that you know as many people um uh, speak about art within the nft space and everything um i would love to to maybe compare or talk about uh, you you're in both worlds right so you've you've worked in the traditional art world um and that's your background and sort of your heritage and now you're entered this um you're on the forefront essentially for me on of the generative art space um i would love to talk a little bit about comparing these two worlds um so and that actually um uh, interests me a lot so what would you say like what, how is are are these worlds today very different the types of people that you meet the types of people um, that collect art, like what are what are similarities and what are what are differences between between these two spaces? Yeah, totally. That's that's a great question. I think there are many angles um, to to um, to look at that. One is sort of from a pure market perspective. Um, it's quite interesting. I think that the you can see that the traditional galleries are not perceived as the incumbent in the NFT space. And the galleries themselves don't um, perceive the new players in the NFT space as a real competition. And the reason for that is quite simple. It's that the collector base has close to zero overlap. Um, From my experience, there are very few traditional art collectors um, who are heavily involved with the NFT space. And there are very few sort of major NFT collectors who have been... um, who have been art collectors for a long time. On the contrary, I think some of the NFT collectors um, have gotten more into collecting art or going to art fairs through NFTs, but the the collector base has almost um, no overlap at all. And I think that's very significant for how this dynamic is playing out at the moment. Because from both sides, there is, I think, an interest to um, work together, um, to explore synergies, but that is at least in my opinion, really made possible by the fact that they're not competitors um, in a traditional sense. Like if the NFT space would mostly be targeting um, like traditional art collectors, the situation would, would be very different. It, it would be it would be much more sort of uh, adversarial and a traditional sort of like incumbent. 
competitor relationship. That's a super interesting observation. And what does this, I mean, us being in the Web3 space and, you know, all of us trying to to grow the space, trying to grow the pie, trying to, you know, everybody speaks about mass adoption and everything. Um, what does this tell you? Like, how 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 is how do you think this kind of convergence is going to happen? So how do you, you say in the traditional world, people want to understand NFTs in the NFT space, people are open to exploring traditional art. What, what, what are you, where do you see approaches or things happening where these two come together in a, in a, in a good sense? Yeah, totally. Um, I think there are different developments that we can see, like um, Artblocks has a collaboration with Pace Gallery now, um, which is a very established international um, art gallery, and um, they're launching um, projects on the on the platform. Um, Tezos has been very active, um, showing a presence on art fairs such as Art Basel, and working with specific, very established um, artists in the contemporary art space. Um, I think that's that's one of the things that's happening. The ideal scenario, I would say, is that um, the some NFT collectors are brought to the traditional art market and vice versa. I mean, that, that, that would really be the, the, the ideal case. And I guess that both, both scenes, so to speak, could, could learn something from the, from the, uh, from the other. Um, but overall, I think that, um, the market is just very different and the market and the audience is, is, is quite different at the moment. Um, Without wanting to idolize the NFT space, I think it's a fact that um, the traditional art market is very centralized. Um, since the last 20 years or so, prices have been so high that uh, you essentially have to be a high net worth individual to be able to participate in right. the art market in a, in a meaningful way. And I think it's a very easy exercise, you know, just, um, you know, think of how many of your friends are collectors of traditional art pieces. Like you need to be able to spend tens of thousands of uh, euros or dollars each year on this. Um, otherwise, it's very hard to be to be an actual collector in that sense. I'm not talking about like buying once a piece of art. And that's just fundamentally different in the NFT space. I mean, you can spend that money. It's not a problem, but you can also um, spend a couple of hundred euros and um, collect amazing um, work on, on, on Tezos or, or, or uh, on a different blockchain that, that doesn't have um, very high prices. Um, that's fundamentally different. And... Another thing that's different is almost generational, I would say. Mm -hmm. It's quite evident if you look at the bias of contemporary art that I would say up until roughly the financial crisis, 2008, um, the people who had, you know, a lot of money as discretionary for discretionary spending um, tended to spend that on contemporary art. It was in that sense cool. It was cool to spend a lot of money on contemporary art. Um, my personal thesis is that the people who made money in the time since then, which has been mostly, you know, digital ventures, like young people who made money in that time, um, they were not buyers of contemporary art. They mm -hmm. didn't feel the connection, um, I think, to this, yeah, in a certain, in a certain way, walled garden. Um, and they, have, of course, been very excited about NFTs. So it's an additional sort of like generational gap, I think. Um, a generation that has been missing, so to speak, as buyers of contemporary art, and that has um, um, went Very over, like to the to the to the NFT side of things. Very interesting. So you're actually describing two um, 
two big things here, right? So the first is you the, this digital new digital art space, this emerging space um, unlocked through NFTs is bringing in new people, and I, I can totally. I can totally confirm this for myself. Like I have, I haven't really been an art person. I didn't find the access probably th through the reasons that you mentioned and NFTs. And it's so close to my, to my, you know, um, tech work basically, um, really, you know, made me think about it very differently. Um, talking to artists, you know, being interested in their work and their processes and, and everything. So that's the one thing. So you, the space basically onboards new people to art uh, which is i think exciting and then but you're what you're also saying is that it's there's also speaking of decentralization there's lower barriers obviously mm -hmm. for artists to, to basically to be seen and to get visibility and to build you know build a, a living off of that so i guess that's exciting if you fast forward 10 years right so um, i don't I, i don't have the numbers here uh, how big the traditional art space is right now and how big the the all of the digital art spaces right now um how do you how do you see those big buckets and you've talked a little bit on how they're overlapping or not overlapping or might overlap in the future um which is interesting how do you how do you see those spaces play out and like what do you think is it you know what what is it going to look like in in 10 years from now um i think the if i remember correctly i think the sort of like annual sales in uh in the art market are usually somewhere around like 65 um or 70 billion dollars um that's the that's the market cap so to speak um what what is going to happen in in 10 years i think there will be change and more adoption of um, digital art but it's very hard to predict in my opinion how that is going to play out um exactly like the commercial side of things will change and i think um like nfts will become more important but i think it's an open question right now um who the defining players are going to be whether that will be innovative galleries who adopt and partner um, or whether it will just be completely different. And the hardest factor to predict, I think, is on the one hand, the regulatory side. Um, we, we, we just don't know how digital assets will be regulated in the next 10 years. Mm. Um, that's a very great unknown. And the second one is sort of institutional. Um, it's not that present. It's not as present as the commercial side, but um, the way institutions and museums um, react um, and as well as how universities react in their cur curricula is, is quite important for sort of like long-term appreciation um, of value in the, in the art space. I think we can see certain tendencies at the moment um, that suggest um, a greater adoption, um, but I think it's very hard to predict. Um, I see, so I see. if I would have to guess, I would say more prediction and uh, yeah, yeah. You know, stronger presence in the traditional art market. But um, I'm sort of, I'm sort of uh, skeptical of people who have like, pretty pretty exact roadmaps for how that's going to play out yeah how do you feel about moma um world known um a museum um kind of um liquidating um traditional art assets and acquiring um nft slash digital art or at least, at least announcing that i think they're not very they, they haven't been very specific on that yet but how, how do you feel about that um it's 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 a village signal now you know it's like um, the ethereum foundation saying selling their <laughs> selling their ETH <laughs> at like at like at like uh three and a half thousand or whatever it was um and yeah, now they're perhaps moma selling peak uh right. peak, peak um no i'm joking aside i think um 
I think it's a great signal. Um, I think it would be amazing if they start acquiring um, work soon. Um, I think for an institution like MoMA, it's of course, on the one hand, their decision has a lot of weight. So they need to, they need to calibrate it correctly um, um, because it's just going to influence the space massively. And on the other hand, they, of course, need to stay relevant. Like um, MoMA is a big brand. It's a, it's a huge business um, uh, in a certain way. And they don't want to lose that next generation of, um, you know, um, art lovers and art enthusiasts. And they, they have to stay relevant as well. And I think um, part of the reason why they become interested in this is, um, you know, due to the prominence of, of digital art on social media and um, especially among the, um, among the younger generation. Um, I hope, I hope that the decision that MoMA makes kind of keeps the inventiveness alive, if that makes sense in the NFT space. So I think it's, 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 it's going to encourage people to still be um, as inventive as the space has been in the last two years and don't lead to consolidation, um, too quickly. Okay. Very, very interesting. Um, before we <clears throat> maybe double click on generative art, uh, which is, um, Uh, yeah, probably one of the most fascinating uh, kind of sub-verticals um, in, in this space right now. Um, art is about showing off, right? And flexing, sometimes at least, right? So people buy expensive art because they want to collect, they want to um, um, they want the value to grow maybe, but they also want to have it in their living room and, and show it to their, to their guests, right. And, and, and tell a story about it. How do you, how do you feel about that in the digital space? So what I know that Bright Moments is doing a lot and we're going to come to that when it comes to onboarding collectors and stuff like that, but from a, let's say art consumer slash user almost perspective, right. Uh, What, how, how do you feel about that? Is that an open question or do you think there's a clear path on, you know, I, I, I don't know, I, I, I buy something on Tezos. I really like the, the person who did the piece and I want to show it in my living room or I want to show it in my office or um, do you, do you, do you, first of all, do you think that's the right way to think about it? That you basically are going to have super nice frames that are going to be thin and high res and whatever, or do you rather think that this whole notion of the metaverse and our digital identity and how we present ourselves online is going to play a, a bigger role when it comes to when it comes to flexing with digital art um yeah that's a great question i would like to add one thought about the sort of contemporary art space as it is as it is um at the moment um i think on the one hand there is what you've called flexing in terms of like um usually showing um aesthetically pleasing or particularly cool um, artists as um, a status symbol or similar but the um I would like to add one thing to that, and that is that there's also a very sort of, you could almost think of it as a spectrum, um, if, I, if I may call it like commercial, commercial contemporary art, and then on the, on the other side of the spectrum, sort of very um, conceptual, very critical, very intellectual right. um, uh, contemporary art, and um, some of that can be commercially successful, but um, other types of it um, aren't, but still, you know, carry a lot of importance, especially on the institutional side of things. And um, in the way art is conceived in, in, in universities. And I think that's sort of that's something quite interesting that also will relate to, um, to the adoption of NFTs, because this sort of self-reflective conceptual side of contemporary art is hugely important for the institutional 
um, integration. I mean, it's, one could make like a long podcast about why that is yeah. and how yeah. it has emerged, yeah. but this self, self, self-critical and so on and so forth, very conceptual side of things has a huge, has a huge place in the, um, in the art space. And one could even think of that as an obstacle, given how, you know, NFTs are at the moment. They are very much about having fun and being aesthetically pleasing. Um, maybe um, we will see more sort of conceptual NFTs. I think Deaf Beef and um, is, is, for example, a great is, is a great example for for somebody who's who's moving in that direction to in in, in a very in a very clever way. I think, but um, yeah, that just as an additional as an additional yeah. thought. Um, that really is, is an important factor in sort of the art market. Um, in regards to um, how people perceive um, NFTs, I think the way I think about it, there are, there are two ways of um, sort of living with the art in a certain way, because as a collector, you in a certain way, you always want to live with the art. That's, um, uh, I, I guess there's an element of like um, what you said showing off, but there's also, um, you know, a certain love, a certain appreciation for the Maybe piece. Maybe it's also just me being superficial, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it's not for everybody. <laughs> no, but like what I would say, I think that there are two trajectories for that. So the one is um, like just living it with it in the in the physical space. And, you know, a lot of great artists like Matthew Laurier, Thomas Lynn Peterson are working a lot with Prince, Tyler Hobbs. Um, and th- that is, a, of course, a great medium for showing colors. Um, colors are different than on screens and so on and so forth. But I think we will also see new display solutions for displaying these works in residential spaces. I think we're really, we're really early in that regard. Um, like Samsung, you know, has, has great screens and right. so on and so forth. But we will see more custom-made screens specifically for that purpose that nicely blend into a residential environment. Um, that's that's one trajectory, I would say. And the other one is um, whatever digital existence is going to look like in a few years. Um, the ownership layer will be NFTs and art NFTs will have a place. Um, you know, you, you can see it in a very primitive way, in a certain way, when people have their avatars on Twitter and the banner right. is one of their favorite art pieces. Um, mm-hmm. Or they use that as a background um, during a Google Meet or Zoom call. Uh, it's. I mean, it's a very early stage, but yeah, I think it yeah. clearly indicates the direction. Um, you know, apart from on cyber and these virtual galleries, but we we will see like whatever the metaverse is going to look like. Like, other NFTs will have a place there um, yeah. as sort of like living with the piece in 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 your digital life. Very cool. Thanks. Um, let's move on to generative art and let's dive a little bit into that. Um, why I would like to talk about it a little more in depth is because I was actually, I'm, I was very new to that whole theme, right? And I actually really was on board through bright moments, right? We're, uh, I'm, I'm part of the DAO as well. Um, minted my, minted my NFT at Craftwork and we're gonna, um, again, teasing bright moments here, talk about that in a second. Um, but I was actually introduced more in depth to the to the concept of generative art and creative coding and everything um, and i didn't really know that existed to be honest i mean yes i knew that there were people doing art with you know digital stuff with computers and like but that was kind of far away and now now i see it very very clearly on what's going on there um could you explain generative art slash creative coding as if i'm a five-year-old in very simple terms 
Yeah, totally. Um, I think taking a step back, most of the definitions of generative art are actually quite independent of code. So generative art was usually defined as um, uh, you know, a system-based art, a system with specific rules um, that will take an input and, and generate a certain output. And there are, um, you know, many, many ways of thinking about um, thinking about generative art. Like, um, you know, uh, I take just one example, um, which usually isn't even considered generative art, but like um, the conceptual artist Solo Witt had, has like a piece that are wall drawings, and it's basically um, a set of instructions. So the piece is not any any anything material; it's just a set of rules and instructions, and you can execute those rules like an algorithm um, mm-hmm. on, on, on any site you please. Um, so and... me as a visitor would execute these actions and then create a piece by... Um, uh, no, it's actually, it's, it's, it's meant to be, it's meant to, it's meant to be executed by whoever is, you know, staging the exhibition or showing the piece, but it's um, the, the, the piece itself is um, actually conceptual art is, is interesting in many ways because it was, um, you know, it's, it's often, purely conceptual, purely informational in a certain way. It's it's sort of pre-digital data, so mm-hmm. to speak, mm-hmm. data-based art. Um, and then code-based generative art exists, you know, since the, since the 50s, 60s, um, since there were computers, essentially. Um, and, you know, they, the artists like Vera Molnar have a certain habit with Franca, have a certain presence in art history, but it has been, I think it's fair to say, marginal. In the traditional art canon, it never found um, um, it never found really a wider audience, and there are different different reasons for that. One could speculate, um, and one certainly is, I think, that there is a certain tech aversion in uh, in the art space. I would say, and what really changed, and what also you know where where Brett Moments comes in, is this idea of um, on chain generative art, um, which was basically introduced by the platform art blocks and the idea is here that um, we're now talking about code-based generative art so we have um, a system software code-based excuse me software software-based yeah. Right? yeah yeah so like the way it works in art blocks is there is a an algorithm um, with uh, you know written in JavaScript um, and the algorithm takes a certain input and generates an output um, one can sync it with a blockchain in the sense that it will take the algorithm will take the hash um, of a transaction as the input, and the different variables are defined and um, are triggered, so to speak, um, by the hash function and um, generate an output. What really changed, and what's important to understand, is that prior to art blocks, um, artists were coding were always caught in a dilemma in a certain way because they would generate outputs and have their like algorithms, but there was no meaningful way to archive the code. You would essentially have these outputs, which may be quite beautiful, but um, you know, if you could, if you would be mean, it, you could say it's a bit hard to distinguish from like graphic design mm-hmm. because you just have these graphic aesthetic outputs. And what really changed with art blocks is that there was a meaningful way to store the code of the entire algorithm in a smart contract on the Ethereum blockchain. And for the individual collector, they would get, um, you know, their piece, um, and, and so to speak, own own that own that little bit of um, code that that defines their piece. Um, and there are different different things to add here. One is that it's the 
like it's one way of having an NFT that is um, purely on the blockchain. Like it doesn't exist in any um, other type of asset. It's really native to the chain because it's pure code. And you can always um, run that script and sort of render your own work. And, um, you know, which in terms of stewardship guarantees you that the piece will be available as long as the Ethereum blockchain um, is alive. And you also have this very interesting um, element of chance um, or involving the blockchain and the collector in the generation of the piece because the artist will work for a long time on this algorithm, but they never know what the exact outcomes are going to be. You know, it's like yeah. uh, the algorithm yeah. has, uh, has a finite um, amount of properties, but the, the outcome is almost, almost infinite. And, and so as a collector, you interact with the, uh, uh, with the algorithm um, and the, the, the hash of your transaction sort of generates the piece. Yeah. Uh, so uh, amazing, amazing explanation. Um, I, I don't know if five-year-old Norman would understand. Uh, so, um, and, I, and I think it's an amazing context. So, so maybe, so, um, so just trying to summarize what is happening there and you, you correct me if I'm wrong. So there is, there has been um, a probably small niche scene as from, from what I've learned for a long time um, that, that did creative coding, right? So they they run they they use software to create outputs to create an interesting thing, um, you know, within that technology space. Um, but they before the blockchain, they didn't really have the the chance to you know make these pieces unique and persistent. Um, and the blockchain and especially what Artblocks did for the space um, enables them now to change that, right? And and uh, and the process, if I understand correctly, roughly looks like. Um, the the artist um, works on some algorithm and works on some piece and basically actually writes software code that creates these art art art, art pieces, right? So these amazing chromie squiggles and and fidenzas and all these um, these really nice nice and visually appealing pieces that are they're, they're not drawn, they're not used with like any like graphical interface, whatever. They're purely generated from software code. And that code gets uploaded to the blockchain, essentially in in the smart contract of Artblocks, right? And then the the collector or the buyer that comes and wants to mint a piece, they connect their wallet, they buy a piece, and only in that very moment with certain variables, they so sort of like the collector, the buyer, the blockchain, and the artist together basically create that 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 piece in the very moment of the mint, right? Is that is that um, for 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 an art generative art or digital art newbie, a proper explanation is that how it roughly works? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think I think that's uh, very well put. Um, I can encourage any listeners to read the article um, "The Rise of Longform Generative Art" by Tyler Hobbs, who's you know uh-huh. probably one of the um, most most well known and successful generative artists, um, where he talks a little bit about his process um, prior to Artblocks, you know, because Tyler was quite active as an artist um, working with code before the rise of Artblocks. But, um, you know, you could sell prints, you could sell graphics, you could sell, um, uh, you know, commission, commission a work to be uh, to be installed somewhere, but you never had this ability to, um, you know, archive the code in, in that sense. Um, one thing to add here is that the this idea of um, or this approach introduced by Artblocks also really changed the medium. Because although prior to Artbox, you didn't have the capacity to store the code, um, you could curate your outputs. 
that means you could just generate like, I don't know, a thousand outputs. And then you would select 200 of them. Like you would select those that you like best. And what Tyler means with um, long form generative art is really that as an artist with the Artbox approach, you are forced to sort of freeze the entire algorithm. Um, and you have to be happy with all the outputs that, that come of it. And, you know, what I've learned from talking to the many amazing artists that Red Moments works with is that this requires um, a lot of work on the algorithm because you need to control this infinite output space to a certain mm -hmm. degree because you want to avoid that you collect this and generate a piece that looks, that has a specific aesthetic that you really don't like, that doesn't yeah. fit the series. And so it's this interesting chance of like, controlling the output space and not being able to much control it but you want to tweak the algorithm in such a way that you at least negatively so to speak avoid um the things that you sh think should be part of the project yeah and uh, so we're definitely going to link um we're going to link um in the in the show notes we're going to link that article from from tyler hobbs and he essentially kind of brought all of this work to the next level now with his latest project qql right where where the collector, you know, has a certain um, has the ability through 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 an interface to um, to actually be part in that creation process. But I think that's that's going too deep. But check out QQL from Tyler Hobbs after you read the article, um, and maybe Malta, we have to meet again and then do an actual deep dive on some projects uh, where you where you go more deep. But today we want to be sort of beginner friendly, so maybe let's move on to the. I was going to say company, but it's an it's a DAO that you're part of, um, and that you that you run basically um, the the Berlin Gallery and the Berlin Sub DAO for um, bright moments, right? You we mentioned it a couple of times. I think it's an it's an amazing player in this whole ecosystem, and I think um, uh, um, for you it's very present. But I think for way too many people out there, it's not actually that that present yet, and many more people should know and will know about it. So can you explain what is Bright Moments and what do you guys do? Sure. Um, more than happy to do that. Um, Bright Moments is, um, is a DAO and international art gallery. It started in the summer of 2021 um, in Venice Beach, Los Angeles. Um, and it started with the idea of live minting. So this process that we just described, um, kind of generating an artwork on the blockchain um, that's wrapped um, as an ERC721 token, you know, Seth's idea, Seth being the founder of Red Moment, Seth's idea was really to turn this moment um, into something memorable, into something important and something meaningful. And to do that in a physical context, not as something that you do um, behind your screens. And that was really the, um, the initial idea for Red Moments. And You can think of um, Bright Moments as being sort of three things. One is uh, a provider for amazing events and exhibitions in the physical world. Um, one is sort of a membership DAO and one is a gallery for generative art. Our roadmap is such that we go around the world in 10 cities um, and we mint a thousand crypto citizens, which are our membership tokens in each of those cities. So there has been an initial um, um, sort of uh, galaxy iteration of citizens. Then there have been the crypto Venetians, uh, crypto New Yorkers, um, crypto Berliners, um, crypto Londoners, 
And for the sixth city, we are going to Mexico City, um, you know, basically next week in, uh, in early November. And, you know, after the roadmap has been completed, there will be 10,000 membership tokens. And once, you know, when we come to a new city, we build communities, we do these like large scale productions and we work with amazing joint up artists um, for, for those right. for those events. Um, after the event um, has concluded, we continue our presence in those cities. We open galleries and continue the community work and we continue to work with generative artists um, in, uh, in, in, in those places. And um, so, yeah, th those are kind of the two complementary sides, I would say, like our own membership tokens, which give you loads of benefits and let you participate in the governance of the DAO. And then we work with, um, you know, some of the best generative artists in the world and do exhibitions for them and um, display their work in uh, our major city events as well as in local gallery shows. Yeah, and and I and I think that's <clears throat> you, you said it. You, you're visiting you're visiting ten cities, um, and and sort of roll out your, I mean, yeah, you roll out your community that way, right? And you kind of you as a almost like a circus. You travel from city to city. You put up these amazing shows. You onboard um, around a thousand people in that local city, in that local digital art communities, and I think that's just such an amazing idea. And I think uh, more people actually should should uh, appreciate that and should talk about it i mean you have all these 10k pfp collections out there that are that are doing sometimes good sometimes bad art they're hyping they're hyping the, themselves up on twitter um uh, they you know build discord and everything and and i think there's um you know some of them that are doing a cool and and sustainable job there but some of them are also maybe not that sustainable and what you guys do is amazing you actually have you know all a 10 and 10k collection as well but you don't just mint it all at once you know with a dutch auction or like some hype but you actually i think over the course of two years you travel roughly right is that is that correct two years roughly it's going to take or like one and a half it's going to take a bit a bit a bit longer you know because we will go into 2024 because um you know okay. it, it had it wasn't feasible to do it like one city every three months you, honestly you just... it makes it even makes it even more impressive and it just i think underlines that you just are in for the long run you really want to build something super meaningful so you travel you know over the course of more than two years you travel 10 cities throughout the world you started in venice beach you did new york then you did i think berlin um you did london and now you do mexico city i think the next one is going to be in asia and i think that's just it's just such an amazing amazing um yeah amazing concept and i i own a I own a crypto Berliner, obviously as well. Uh, I minted it at an amazing show. Uh, can you maybe may, maybe um, talk a little bit about the the shows that you you you've guys put together uh, so far? Because they're also very diverse, right? You had this huge thing, in this industrial building in Berlin. You had a I think a more of a smaller thing and more intimate atmosphere in London. And now you're going to Mexico. So maybe can can you share some of these minting experiences that you've guys put together? Yes, absolutely. Um... One thing to note maybe is that of these thousand citizens, um, we have a specific distribution mechanism that we always give away one third for free to the local community. Um, so we really do a lot for onboarding new people um, and, and, and giving away these tokens um, to be also really integrated in the local context and to be able to sustain communities there. Then we have a third that goes to existing crypto citizens and the third is sold sort of prior to the event to um, bankroll the events and the ones that are sold also give you privileged access to um, 
the Gentabot sales that we do. The minting experience are sort of really the the focus of upright moments. We have these very curated experiences that we try to make sort of specific to the local context. Um, I can't speak too much about the Venice and New York uh, minting experience because I wasn't part of the team yet. But it's worth noting that the Venice Beach minting experience really started by giving away these tokens for free. And there was a, you know, it was like the like the crypto crypto or NFT craze summer of 21. And so they were extremely expensive at some point. And, you know, people, um, people were crazy about getting, getting one of them for free. And you could only get them if you were the IOL. Um, you know, New York was together with the show by Tyler Hobbs. So it was, it was a great event. And then Berlin, where I came in, was the first show outside of the US. And it was, for those who know Kraftwerk, it's really one of the most monumental event spaces in Germany, perhaps Europe, I would say. It's a former power plant. Um, it's it's a really epic building. Um, it looks a bit like a brutalist uh, brutalist church or so. And we had this event, which was sort of a Blade Runner slash techno party slash NFT exhibition, um, with you know screens on two floors, very open, um, really also a homage to um, Berlin Berlin nightlife. We work with some of the best bookers in the city, and the event had two sides, so to speak. One was to the core community and our collectors, where you could mint Amazing Giant of Art by Casey Reyes and, and MP Cars and Light of Sun and, and other outstanding artists. And the other side was just basically a very public nightlife event where people would come and have a great time, see NFTs, um, didn't need any technical knowledge and would just introduce in a very low barrier way um, that also worked well, I think, with Berlin nightlife culture to the entire space. And the yeah, I think the concepts I would use to describe it was like monumental, um, retro futuristic, and uh, and epic. I think it you know people were very impressed by the event by the sheer scale of it, um, including me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then London was, we were really leaning into the more bespoke elements um, of, of London. We had two locations. One was in Soho Square, where we did the art shows that we had. You know, we had um, Mette Laurier, um, Sputnikko, Emily G, um, Thomas and Peterson, um, you know, amazing art shows, Nicholas Sassoon. And we had a, a second location in Mayfair, which is one of the poshest um, parts of London. Um, a two-story sort of building where we had a very bespoke service for minting the crypto Londoners. It was like, you know, you were greeted at the at the entrance. There were almost no screens, um, a lot of framed, framed crypto citizen art, and you were led to a room with a self-playing piano, get a glass of champagne, you sit down on a cu- on a on a on a on a couch, and um, your crypto citizen was delivered in a very small box um a jewelry box and you needed like a magnifying glass to to see it and mexico will be quite different again um we have a space called prim which is a event space so slightly brutalist but not as big as craft work um and also with a lot of plans a lot of sort of um very nice textures in the space and each artist you know we have 11 outstanding artists from like Snowfro to William Mapan uh, to Iska Vilichovka. 
and they will all have their own space. And in the middle courtyard, we will mint the crypto maxes and it will be a very festive um, four day event where we do, you know, hundreds of mints each night. We have our own restaurant where um, guests can get can get free meals and drinks. And um, yeah, I think it'll be it'll be a very festive sort of a multi-day art festival. Very cool. And you mentioned the the outstanding lineup that you guys put together for this, right? And I think one um, highlight there is you you mentioned before what Artblocks has done um, to that whole space, right? And how it's really uh, become an amazing platform for the whole genre. Um, and Snowfro um, is the founder of Artblocks, so maybe we, we should mention that, right? And and from what I've learned, it's it's only the second or third drop ever after his initial chromie squiggles drop which is is very popular in the in the space um, and he's doing it with you guys right yes exactly um so we're really honored that snowfro is, is is doing his sequel to the squiggle with us um the squiggle is sort of a signature piece by um by eric um considered you know one of the founding pieces of generative art um there are you know close to ten thousand pieces of it now And um, Eric was born in Mexico City. And I think that was a huge factor for, you know, he's very busy and he um, accepted um, participating in Mexico nonetheless because he felt quite inspired to, um, you know, do this show in the city where, where he was born. And another another thing that's maybe worth mentioning is I think that, you know, art, art blocks and Bright Moments worked together from the very beginning. And um, I had the honor to interview um, Snowfro for the Private Moments Quarterly, which is kind of a catalog we do for the events. And he said that his initial idea for Artbox was really born out of his work with projection mapping, where he could, um, where he would ask the audience to participate in the artwork, you know, to hit a few buttons and, and influence the, and influence the, the, the art on display. So he always had this idea of, um, somehow integrating the the audience um, in a particular fashion. And I think the Bright Moments approach of making this audience participation in minting not only something that you do um, at home on your computer, but in real life um, is extremely sort of interesting to him. And um, I think that that was another huge factor, you know, to be able to offer this IRL minting experience of his next piece um, in Mexico City. Yeah. Um and yeah, it's going it's going to be awesome. That's so amazing. Um so um yeah, we're 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 slowly running out of time. I could I could go on with all of this forever. Um so maybe um as one of my last questions, um, um so you guys travel can you so what is it is it is it announced already? where you're going to travel to next. So you have Mexico City coming up very soon. So what's, yeah. what's the next one after that? Yeah, we, we, we will go to Tokyo in, in spring. Okay. Um, Amazing. 2023. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, maybe I should try to make it there. I'm Absolutely. not going to be in Mexico Absolutely. City, but yeah. uh, um, very, very cool. I mean, I mean announced just... anything yet, but it oh. will lean more into the generative art and AI side of things. I think that's, um, so that's, that's what some... we can say. Some alpha here in the uncapped Web3 talks. Uh, very cool. Absolutely. No, I mean, it's, it's just amazing. And I, and I think just the this, this, this city roster that you guys are 
are are are are working on it's just it's just amazing i mean venice beach new york berlin london mexico city now tokyo i i think it's just really it's just really impressive what you guys put together there i'm, I'm really a very big fan um maybe last question um given i mean you have now seen oh well i mean you've been to new york uh, a lot i guess so you've, you 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 plugged into the berlin scene you've been to to the london show you're now in preparation of the mexico city can you can you share some some insights and thoughts uh, how how are these cities different in terms of both the artist side of things but also the collector side of things do you see specific like you know how 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 was the audience and the people interested different in london uh, um, versus berlin or or is it like a general is is this whole space very international and very um, very similar, or do you do you see specific patterns when you look at these? Maybe even exploring Tokyo already, which is super different culturally, right? So, like, do you do you see anything there when you look at the at the digital art space? Um, I would. It's it's a great question. I would say that you always find this group of sort of very international, crypto native, digital native um, people um, in in basically every city that you know. I know about the project, have been in crypto for some time, you know, I usually doing well and you can, you can always tap into that community. And, and we are of course happy to do that. Um, it's very important for us, but Seth has been quite adamant from the beginning. And I think that's great to not only do that, but also to really speak to the local community and to onboard new people. And these cities are certainly different in that regard. And they're also different in their degree of like general web-free crypto penetration, I would say. Um, like, from my experience, you know, in, in Berlin, you have this particular situation that many people, you know, who have been for a very long time in crypto and done some amazing things um, were based out of Berlin. But it's been a bit of a fractured scene. And the, the general public has, like, very little adoption of, um, of NFTs, I would say. And that has been different in London. Like, the general adoption was sort of stronger. Um, but then you had in, you, in Berlin, you have this amazing creative community um, who, who is you know, curious to find out and very supportive of events. And that's, that's, that's a great resource. The same applies to collectors, I think. That, that was that was your way to say the Berliners just like to party a lot. That that was basically what you wanted to say, right? Yeah, like, like, like to come to <laughs> openings and, you know, get, get, get drinks for free and stuff. No, no, just checking. And but yeah, similar with collectors, I would say. Like um like there are a few like big collectors in Berlin, but um the majority of people um, you know, is I think interested in, in drops that are like priced, let's say, in the area of like 0.1 to 0.25 Eve. And above that, there are just fewer collectors. I think that's it's it's an economic fact in um, in London, it's slightly different. So, you know, you have slightly different collector bases, you have slightly different um, web-free penetration, um, and you have um, more and less active art communities. And um, all those things are different factors. And I think what makes for a thriving and, uh, and great community. Very interesting. Yeah. Thanks a lot for sharing this, Malta. So everybody go check out. We're going to put Brad Moments um, into the show notes as well. Um, uh, yeah, I think uh, 
um, videos speak more than words. So you guys should just check out their website and see uh, the amazing experiences that they put together. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited for what's to come. And uh, I'm, I'm going to be following you guys. Um, Malte, we're, we're, we're running out of time. Um, the last thing um, you you I think you gave some um, very great um, kind of insights and and opinions already on people that you know are interested in maybe digital art, generative art, art blocks, and everything, um, um, and to make it more actionable. Besides the the Tyler Hobbs article that everybody should read, um, do you have um, what are your let's say three artists or projects that people that are curious about the space should check out can be everything can be something super hyped up and coming can be something um sort of historical or whatever what do you think what are the your top three artists or projects that that uh, people should check out after after that podcast sure um i want to highlight three sort of artists that are based out of europe um one is uh, stefano contiero um he's an art blogs curated artist um And, you know, he's doing a job with us in, in, uh, in Mexico now. Um, I think he has a very unique way of sort of combining very harmonious and very dissonant patterns um, in his work. Um, really outstanding artist, wonderful person. Um, everybody should uh, definitely check out his work. Um, the same applies to Elida Sun, uh, who is based here in Berlin. Uh, she was part of our Kraftwerk show. And is, I would say, the most interesting artist when it comes to combining generative art with installation and performances. So she's really you know, taking this medium and extending it into physical space and doing groundbreaking uh, work in that regard. And the last artist I would like to mention is uh, Julian Hespenheider, who is a Berlin-based generative artist who is, hasn't, you know, he's not as visible yet as Lida and Stefano, but um, I think he will definitely get there. Um, he has a lot of work on um, Tezos and he, you know, has one project with us, um, an artist in residence project um, on Ethereum. I think he's preparing an FX hash drop um, at the moment and people should definitely watch out for that. I think he's extremely talented and has a unique sort of retro ASCII aesthetic. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks. So, and we're going to link Stefano, Elida, and Julian as well. Um, amazing. Malte, this was so interesting. Uh, I, I, I think uh, a lot of the listeners are, are going to, you know, find, um, uh, you know, the, the barrier to en enter that space might be lower, hopefully, after, after, what, after your, uh, your insights and what you share today. Um, thanks a lot for being here. Uh, we should repeat this at some point and then, you know, maybe dive a little deeper. Now we got covered the basics. Um, and, uh, thanks so much for being on here. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Um, you know, uh, if anybody has any questions, feel free to come around at our gallery. We are in Berlin Mitte in Auguststraße. We usually do meetups on Thursdays. And if you have any questions, you can also reach out, uh, on Twitter. And yeah, Norman, thanks so much for having me. It's been great to talk with you. Amazing, Malte. Thanks, all, thanks and see you soon. Bye. See you soon. Bye.